The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. are as quick and easy to apply as the book of Proverbs. However, it may also be the hardest book of the Bible to preach from exegetically and faithfully. The Proverbs are wisdom for life, but at first glance they seem to be like a, a, a random assortment of quippy, pithy, axiomatic sayings that are shotgunned at you with seemingly no rhyme or reason to their layout. But at this church, we want to know the Proverbs well, and we want to live the Proverbs well. And starting today, our Old Testament readings are going to be from the book of Proverbs, one chapter each Sunday, until we make our way all the way through the book in the end of chapter 31. So what is at the core of this book? What is its main message? How are we supposed to approach it rightly? How do we look at these lists of do's and don'ts and walk away with a grace-based response? How do we examine positive and negative examples that are listed here and walk away with anything more than a legalistic set of rules? How are we supposed to observe the right way to live and then apply that to our lives but do so in a gospel-centric way? That is what we hope to proclaim this morning. So our approach today is to divide and conquer. Four preachers are going to focus on uh, four different thematic elements of the book this morning. First, in just a moment, Pastor Jim is going to come forward, and he is going to preach about the way of the fool. Secondly, Pastor Steve is going to come up and preach about the way of the wise. Then, Pastor Mike is going to come and preach about wisdom and the sovereignty of God, as we see it here in Proverbs. And finally, I will close us out by preaching about Christ, the wisdom of God. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So let's go before God right now and ask that as we come to his word, that he will grant us wisdom today. Let's pray. Father, we come asking you. We need wisdom. We come recognizing that we are fools, that in and of our own strength, we will find all of the wrong ways to live, that the things that seem right to us end in death, that the activities of our natural Mankind is just a pursuit of foolishness. Lord, we pray that today you would give us clarity about how to read this book and how to see Jesus and how to live like him. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I am very excited this morning that we are able to take this unique look at a very unique book, the book of Proverbs. And I know we just read... Uh, through chapter 1, but let me just reread the first seven verses uh, as they pertain to what I want to speak about this morning. In these seven verses, we find the theme of the book of Proverbs stated right at at its very beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, 
to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance to understand the proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And this morning I will be speaking on the way of the fool, a way, sadly, I am all too familiar with. And uh, I see many nodding their heads. Yes, we, we feel that way, and it's true. But thank God we have his word, amen, to lead us in the paths of righteousness and wisdom. Now, in these seven verses, we find the theme of the book stated right at its very beginning. The purpose or the goal of the book of Proverbs is, bo- is to both describe and produce wisdom in God's people. A wisdom that is founded in the fear of the Lord and that is worked out in the life of God's people in the practical details of everyday situations and relationships. Toward that end, the book takes the form of, well, Proverbs, simple moral statements or illustrations that highlight and teach fundamental realities about life, realities that are designed to lead us to meditate upon God and to contemplate, first of all, the fear of God, and secondly, what it means to live by his wisdom, with the sum and the substance of that wisdom, of course, personified in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Pastor Caleb will speak about in just a little while. Now, the two major ideas which are interwoven and overlapping throughout Proverbs is wisdom and folly, wisdom and foolishness. First of all, there is wisdom which is the major emphasis of the book, and which includes knowledge, understanding, instruction, discretion, and obedience, all of which, again, is built on the fear of the Lord and the word of God. And then there is folly, which is everything opposite of that wisdom. And again, in my few minutes this morning, I will be addressing what the book of Proverbs says about the fool. Again, Proverbs teaches us how to be wise people. And part of learning what wisdom looks like is learning to recognize wisdom's opposite. And the opposite of the wise man in Proverbs is the fool. Now, when we read our English translations of the book of Proverbs, you know, we find there is one English word, fool, that actually translates three Hebrew words. There are three Hebrew words translated as fool, In our English Bibles, there is kesil, K-E-S-I-Y-L, if you're taking notes. There is evil, E-V-I-Y-L, and nabal, N-A-B-A-L. And there's not a great deal of difference in meaning between these three words. However, there are some subtle differences, some nuances. There are some shades of difference. And if we take all of the verses in the book of Proverbs in which Kesil is described, and all the verses in which Evil is described, and the verses in which Nabal is described, we see there, there's enough difference that we can speak of three kinds of fools. Uh, then there are two additional words, Hebrew words, that we would want to consider. One is Pethi, P-E-T-H-I-Y, which is usually translated as simple, we see that in several times in the uh, in chapter one. 
I would consider those described as simple to be a type of fool, the simple fool. And then there is the Hebrew word lutz, L-U-W-T-S, which is usually translated as scorner or scornful. Yet another type of fool, the scorning fool. So altogether we can identify five, I don't want to say distinct kinds of fool, because there's really is a lot of overlap. Okay, we, we, I'm going to say five variations of fools, which I'm going to briefly describe to you. Again, all these variations of fools share similar distinguishing marks as fools, uh, but some may be more pronounced in one area of foolishness over another. All right, so let's go through this quickly. Let's talk about the simple fool. And the Hebrew word there, pethi, literally means to be opened up. He's just open to everything. It implies extreme vulnerability. The simple fool opens his mind to any passing thought. He's open to all kinds of enticements and deception. He's dangerously immature, extremely gullible, and without instruction and consistent discipline, the simple fool will quickly regress into greater foolishness. According to Proverbs, the simple fool loves his simplicity. He's devoid of understanding, and again, he's gullible. Then there is the scoffer, the scorning fool. Hebrew word again, lutz. That word literally means to make mouths at. In other words, the scorning fool, you could see, it's written all over his face, the scorn, the contempt that he has in his heart for God and his ways. This person laughs at wisdom, toys with wickedness, warned of the consequences. He, he just dismisses, oh, that won't happen to me. He doesn't really care. According to the book of Proverbs, the scorner delights in his scorning. He shames and hates those who are trying to correct him. He refuses to listen to a rebuke, and he's proud and haughty, causing contention and strife. Uh, Proverbs 19.29 says he will inevitably face judgment, and because of his scornful ways, he is often detested by others. Then there's the arrogant fool, Kesil. This word denotes one who has a bent for making wrong choices. He rejects the wisdom of God and is arrogantly set on doing what brings him immediate pleasure. He's an arrogant fool. He's a sensual fool. He willfully ignores wisdom. He lives unto himself. He has no interest whether something is morally right or wrong, good or bad. All that matters is you know, what's in it for me. According to Proverbs, this fool hates knowledge. He proclaims foolishness to others. He rages at instruction and is self-confident. Uh, he despises wisdom as well, and he is wise in his own eyes. He will be destroyed through his complacency, uh, the scripture says. Then we have the rebellious fool, Evil. That word literally means to be thick. He's thick-headed. And in his thick-headedness, he morally misses the mark. He hates wisdom. In fact, this is the fool we just read of in chapter 1, verse 7, where it says he despises wisdom and instruction. He so totally rejects it. He can be said, he can be said to be an aggressive unbeliever. 
Uh, he's sure that he's right. He mocks the idea of sin, and he quarrels easily, very argumentative. And then finally, there is Nabal, the committed fool. This is one, that word literally means wicked, vile, and stupid. And this is the one. This is the fool of whom Psalm 14, verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then uh, Psalm 14, 1 further comments, they are corrupt, these kinds of fools. They do abominable things. They are morally wicked. And this fool is committed to his wickedness. He is a committed fool, fully committed to being his own God and dedicated to drawing others away into his evil ways. And this type of fool is accurately defined in the book of Jude, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now that is the briefest and most general overview of the fool as he is presented in Proverbs. And Proverbs sets a stark alternative before us, the way of folly or the way of wisdom. And the difference between the two ultimately is the difference between trusting in oneself or trusting in God. The fool is one who ultimately trusts in himself rather than in God. Understand this about the book of Proverbs. It is a profoundly religious book. And by that I mean it's not simply a book of secular Proverbs, like early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Rather, Proverbs is a book about our lives before God. Amen? Amen. It, is it practical? Absolutely. But is it in any way superficial or merely external in its focus? Absolutely not. It contains a treasure trove of moral and ethical elements, stressing righteous living which flows out of a right relationship with God. And so when we make this distinction between wisdom and folly, when Scripture makes that distinction, it is not at all about distinctions in intelligence or education. The distinction between a wise man and a fool is not one of intellect or education. These are moral qualities. Amen? Moral qualities. Objections to the existence of God and the truthfulness of his word are not intellectual. They are moral. And one is not wise because he is educated and intelligent. Nor is one a fool because he is not educated or intelligent. Some of the most brilliant and educated people the world has ever known have also been among the greatest fools the world has ever known. I mean, has there been a more brilliant tie, a mind in recent times than Stephen Hawking? Right? What a brilliant, brilliant man. And yet, he says in his heart, or he's no longer with us, but he has said in his heart, there is no God. In fact, he has arrogantly declared, or arrogantly declared, he did, that he believed he could prove mathematically that the universe did not need a creator to exist. That is raging foolishness from one of the most brilliant minds the world has ever known. The wise ultimately are the righteous who obey God and who build their lives around him and his ways and who live not for this present world but for the world to come. And the fools are the unrighteous who live as though there is no God nor a world to come. 
Two New Testament passages make this perfectly clear. We'll just look at one. One is Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, where Jesus contrasts the wise builder and the foolish builder, right? The wise builder, the wise man builds his house, his life on Christ and his word, looking for the world to come. The foolish man builds his life, his world, uh, on the sinking sand of his own wisdom, which is really foolishness. Um, And when the judgment comes, the wind, the rains, and such, only one stands in the judgment, and that is the wise man. But the one I want us to look at is Luke chapter 12. Close with this very quickly. Luke chapter 12. In verse 13 of Luke chapter 12, a man comes to Jesus. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus is teaching a crowd, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to the man, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, the crowd, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. This man comes with a complaint. His brother is not dividing the inheritance with him. He probably deserved it. It was was probably a just request. But Jesus essentially is saying, hey, note the covetousness in this man. Look what he's concerned about, right? Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Why was this man a fool? Why? Because he was laying up treasures for himself, living life in this world, for this world, as though there was no God to whom he must ultimately give account. He was not rich toward God through faith. This man, this fool, he anticipated years of ease in this life, a time to eat, drink, and be merry. Instead, an eternal destiny apart from God awaited him, the judgment of hell itself. And so, too, it awaits any of you, any of us, who are not rich toward God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the promise of everlasting life. The greatest folly there can ever be is to hear the gospel the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners from condemnation and punishment through faith in him and his death on the cross and to reject that and to continue to live as though there is no God nor no life to come. Don't be so foolish. Don't be that fool. Amen? When one graduates with their first degree from a college, it tends to be either a Bachelor of Arts or a Bachelor of Science degree, both of which have been obtained in a College of Arts and Sciences. Unfortunately, most participants in this structure, and I was one of them, don't even have a clue as to what is actually meant by these two terms, art and science. The science of something consists of the field's specific facts, theories, and laws. It is the who, what, where, when of the academic discipline. The art of something consists of applying the science in real-world scenarios.
The art would be the why and the how of the academic discipline. Interestingly, as long as you've been studying the scriptures, and more specifically the book of Proverbs, you have actually been engaging all along in this type of an education. What we call science, the Bible calls knowledge. What we call art, the Bible calls wisdom. While the art is a science properly applied, wisdom is knowledge properly applied. So how do we obtain this knowledge and then live according to this wisdom? In Proverbs 1.7, we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is crucial to point out that it does not say that it is the beginning of a type of knowledge or that there are different truths as is so strongly advocated by our pluralistic culture. Knowledge here involves knowing that which is absolutely true regardless of opinion, regardless of desire, regardless of political correctness. To know that which is absolutely true, though, we must begin with a specific starting point, an engine, if you will, that makes awareness and understanding of absolute truth possible. That starting point is the fear of the Lord. This fear of the Lord is an interesting thing. It is not fright, nor is it terror, but rather an awareness that God is sovereign over all, that God is good all the time, that I am neither, and that I need to do what God says or else, as we often articulated it in relation to our earthly fathers, Dad's going to kill me when I get home. It is a healthy and accurate recognition of who is in charge and an acknowledgement that doing things God's way is flawlessly superior to doing things my way, which is often very destructive. That way, or that my ways are not God's ways, that my thoughts are not God's thoughts, that ideas and actions do have consequences, all of which are governed by God, from whom there is no circumvention or escape. Proverbs 28:26 tells us, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. There is terror, uh, but only when the fool goes against what God has stated. While this proper fear of the Lord is a prerequisite to genuine knowledge, we then read in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is something else. It is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge, accurate awareness of that which is absolutely true, by itself puffs up, as we see in 1 Corinthians 8. Without wisdom, knowledge is a dangerous and destructive thing. It leads to arrogance, condescension, and legalism, characteristics that were so prevalent in the lives of the Pharisees, who arguably knew more truth than anyone but were not changed by it. They used it to lord over others. For the one who authentically fears the Lord, though, that one will pursue understanding of God's creation and ways, but they will also pursue the proper application of that knowledge, the art, if you will. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Love is the fuel behind the application of knowledge and is guided by wisdom. The way of the wise must begin with the fear of the Lord, lest all things known be taken out of context, distorted into misunderstanding, and result in foolish living. The way of the wise is indeed a way, a sojourn, a highway that we travel from the cradle to the grave, 
or at least from the point of rebirth to the grave, that involves learning and applying more and more of what of that which comes from God's holy mind, replacing that which comes from our own fallen minds. One of the most influential philosophies that was engrafted into the bedrock of American thought, and I have to fight it all the time, is called Romanticism. And it drives much of the foolishness that we see in our culture today. Among a whole slew of anti-biblical ideas, Romanticism makes the claim that man is at his best when he is at his simplest, his most animalian, if you will, closest to his natural primitive state. It is the undergirding of uh, progressivism that drives the predominance of our academic landscape in America today. Proverbs begins by identifying the benefits of accumulating knowledge, wisdom, and understanding as giving prudence to the simple, basically rescuing, fixing the simple, and giving discretion to the youth. It then personifies wisdom as a woman who, as the text states, cries aloud in the streets. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you have refused to listen, though. I have reached out my hand and no one has heeded because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and they did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all of my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices, For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. When I was a younger father attempting to raise wise children, when I offered instruction that was not heeded and unpleasant consequences were realized by them, I always required my children in those moments to declare, Daddy was right again. I wanted them to learn what wisdom is crying from the streets. God is right again. If we just do what God says, we will remain securely on the way of the wise and never have to shamefully respond with those words of, Daddy was right again. Do everything you can to accumulate knowledge and wisdom so that you may dwell securely and will be at ease without dread of disaster. I'm often saying Steve was right again, but that's another sermon. Please open in your Bibles to Proverbs 16, as almost everything I'm going to be discussing will come from that chapter, Proverbs chapter 16. Wisdom and sovereignty. Verse 1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Verse 2. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Verse 9, the heart of man plans his way, 
but the Lord establishes his steps. Verse 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. We've already heard Proverbs 9, 10 quoted today. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Brothers and sisters, true wisdom begins and is rooted in the acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. True wisdom begins and is rooted in the knowledge of the sovereignty of God. Verses 1, 2, 9, 25, and 33 all begin with man's wishes, with man's plans, and with man's desires. What we think is good and is right. But the verses all end with man's inability, man's questionable motives, and man's insufficiency. Ladies and gentlemen, man is utterly helpless without God. Man is totally dependent upon God to accomplish anything. We must acknowledge that. James tells us, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade with and make profit. But you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Wisdom in any given situation, what to do, what to think, what to say, begins and is rooted in the acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty means he can successfully accomplish all of his purposes. And he ordains whatsoever comes to pass, even the roll of the dice. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Therefore, we can do nothing unless the Lord wills it. And even when we are, by grace, enabled to act... The Lord weighs our spirits, i.e. our motives, our attitudes. We've all memorized verses 18 and 19 where it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It is better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Do you see what that's saying? In other words, a proper attitude is much, much more valuable than riches. And poverty is to be desired more than pride. And as Steve already mentioned, that's not what we hear in society. It's the other way around. You see, true wisdom is rooted in the fear and the reverence of the Lord and the acknowledgement of his complete and utter sovereignty over all things. Verse 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Hear this quote by the great English Puritan Matthew Henry regarding this verse. He says this, Note one, that God is the first cause. He is the former of all things and all persons, the fountain of being. He gave every creature the being it has and appointed it its place. Even the wicked are his creatures, though they are rebels. He gave them those powers with which they fight against him which aggravates their wickedness, that they will not let him that made them rule them. And though he made them, he will not save them. Note too, that God is the last end. All is of him and from him, and therefore all is to him and for him. 
He made according to his will and for his praise. He designed to serve his own purposes by all his creatures and he will not fail of his designs. All are his servants. The wicked he is not glorified by, but he will be glorified upon. Amen. All of it made and controlled by God Almighty for his own glory. Knowing this, and remember, knowing leads to believing and believing leads to action, right? Knowing all of this is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom is of great value and importance in the life of a believer. Verse 16 says, how much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Amen? And here are some of the verses that touch upon wisdom and sovereignty. Verse 3 says, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. In other words, trust the outcome to God. Pray to align your will with his. And when his will is established, which it always is, then by necessity, your plans will be established as well. Verse 20 says, whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. Let me ask you a question. What is wiser than considering and meditating on the word of God, the God-breathed scripture? You see, one who does this is indeed wise and will discover good. And just as believing leads to action, giving thought to the word leads to trust in its author. Giving thought to the word leads to trust in its author, resulting in what? In blessing. Verse 10 says, an oracle is on the lips of the king. His mouth does not sin in judgment. This is a bit more complicated, but I believe the gist of the teaching for us today is this. If the king or any godly person is seeking wisdom from God and his word, then being so thoroughly transformed by God's word, righteous judgments and decisions will proceed from his lips. Think of who you go to first when you need counsel or advice. Think about that person right now. Whomever that is, you trust that that person's word will be sound, it'll be logical, it will be fair, and most of all, that it would be biblical. And when they speak to you, even off the top of their head, they're running out like I do. They speak off the top of their head. You hear the words of scripture rolling smoothly off their tongue. It's not that they're receiving new revelation from God. Rather, they're speaking Bible truth that they've already internalized. The oracles of God, godly wisdom that was already revealed in the inscripturated word of the Lord. Amen? Amen. And we also see chapter 16 presenting many admonitions to wise living, as we've heard already today. Verse 11 addresses honesty in business, 1 Corinthians 6, 8. Verse 12 encourages kings and those in authority to act in righteousness with the promise of success, 2 Peter 2, 14. Verse 17 exhorts believers to turn away from evil and to guard our way with the promise of eternal life, John 6, 36. Verses 23 to 24 tells us to set a guard on our mouths in what we say and shows the value of gracious speech, Ephesians 4, 29. Verses 27 and 28 forbids lying, gossip, and slander, Colossians 3, 8. Verses 29 and 32 warns about violent men and lauds the benefit of keeping a cool temper. Verse 32 says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. 
And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. All these proverbs are logical. Even an unbeliever can agree at least in theory with most of them. But none of these proverbs can be followed or obeyed without God's enabling grace. As believers in Christ, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We can heed these warnings and behave in accordance with them. We can even, God willing, keep aware of our attitudes and motives while we are behaving wisely. But I implore you, brothers and sisters, by the teaching of Proverbs 16, to keep in mind and heart God's sovereignty before, God's sovereignty during, and God's sovereignty after all of these do's and don'ts that we're going to hear about this morning. It's because he's sovereign that we can trust in him to be glorified through us, through our honesty, through our our integrity, through our gracious speech, through our cool tempers. We fear the Lord in whom we trust. We are dependent upon him. And again, we acknowledge his ability while admitting our own inability apart from his grace. Wisdom and sovereignty, Proverbs 16. Brothers and sisters, seek wisdom. Seek it from the word. Seek it from mature Christians. Value it above all other earthly things. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And as his children, we who are bought by the blood of Christ, we know his sovereignty will ensure his glory and is in the best interests of the church. Amen? I love the Proverbs. Uh, The Proverbs are brilliant reminders of the kind of life that God desires for us to live. I'm so thankful for the Proverbs, and I'm thankful that God doesn't leave us just to question or wonder about the basic details of everyday life. It just tells us straight up, this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you're supposed to live. He gives us very clear, very concise, very understandable, bite-sized truths that we are called to deeply consider and to radically apply. But as we regularly say from this pulpit, every part of your Bible is about Jesus. Every single verse is pointing to him. But the question is, how do we see the gospel here in this book? Where do we find Christ among these ancient adages? I actually did something I almost never do in preparing for this sermon. I actually just Googled that question. And it was amazing to see the number of well-trained, some even seminary professors, brilliant scholars who would say, Christ is not present here. That is a falsehood, and that is a danger if we understand it that way. How you answer this question, where is Jesus in this book, is ultimately going to determine whether you apply these maxims with a legalistic, external, earthly wisdom, or if you rather, by the grace of God, are able to see these divinely spoken precepts and respond with a Christ-exalting, heart-motivated, godly wisdom. So in order to help you answer that question, where is Jesus in this book, I'm going to finish up our time together this morning by offering you two paradigms through which to comprehend the Proverbs in a Christocentric way. First, we are going to see Jesus as our display of wisdom. And secondly, we are going to see Jesus as our door into wisdom. First, let's see him as our ultimate display, our portrait of what wisdom looks like. Every single proverb that you see listed in these 31 chapters is a description of one tiny aspect of the life that Jesus lived out. 
One of my favorite commands in the book of Proverbs comes from uh, Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7, which says, The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you do, get insight. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. Just get it. That's wisdom. It's kind of an interesting way to put it. But this indicates clearly that wisdom does not just develop naturally in a person or it doesn't appear at random or by accident. Wisdom is not just something you gain by being older than other people, contrary to modern American belief. Wisdom is something to chase after with effort and with your energy. We all fail to do that perfectly, but consider the boy Jesus as he is written about by Dr. Luke in his gospel account. Consider Jesus when he was a child. We learn that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but not this one. Luke chapter 2, verse 40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Here we see him actually go into the temple, and he's teaching the people that are supposedly wise in the temple that day. And when his mother and earthly father show up into the room, it says in Mark chapter 1, that the people, the teachers of Israel, were astonished at his wisdom. Chapter fifty, or chapter 2 of Luke, verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus personified wisdom. He is the portrait of wisdom. And I will simply give you two examples of this for the sake of time. First, in regards to laziness. That's one of the things that has not yet been touched upon much in our three sermonettes that preceded mine. One of the major things that the book of Proverbs hammers over and over and over is the problem of laziness. That is something that is inborn in us. We desire to be comfortable. We desire slothfulness or laziness. It speaks against trading your God-given time and talent for a life of chasing ease. Over and over and over, we see what the sluggard is like. In the book of Proverbs. But perhaps the most hilarious and hyperbolic expression of this is found in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 24, which says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. He's so lazy he can't even, can't even lift that spoon back to his face. We laugh at that, but almost all of the inventions that have been created in the last 50 years exist because we're lazy. I can't get off the couch. Just use my remote control. I literally saw a picture or a meme the other day on Facebook or somewhere which said first world problems and it had a lady sitting on a couch and she's desperately reaching, trying to grab her phone, but she's unwilling to stand. We are lazy. We can look at that and laugh, but we are just like that in some area of our lives. We are naturally lazy people. Laziness is foolishness. Laziness is sinfulness. And Jesus is our perfect display of faithfully living for the glory of God in all things. His earthly ministry spanned about three to three and a half years. Yet John tells us that all the books in the world could not contain everything he accomplished. He would wake up early and he would go out and he would pray. He would serve until he was so tired that he could sleep through a storm at sea. He is our perfect, lived-out example of not being lazy. Do you want to know what the Proverbs look like in a person? Look to Jesus. Here's a second example. The Proverbs is 
primarily written for a father to use as a book to teach a son. That is the way that it is organized and outlined. That's why you often hear it saying, My son, listen to my teachings. This was a manual of instruction for a dad to teach his child. And as part of that goal, the Proverbs teach men and boys how to avoid sexual misconduct with women. It's everywhere in the book of Proverbs. And chapter 5 is explicitly a sermon on sexual purity. But the ultimate reason that this father gives for his son's purity is found at the end in verse 21. He says, For man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all of his paths. You have to understand, God's watching, my son. There's nothing that you're doing that is hidden from his eyes. You are living a life not just in front of the world. If that's what you're doing, you're going to hide your sin. You're living a life before the eyes of God himself. Your conduct is carried out before the Father. Who personifies that? Jesus perfectly showed us a person who always desired to please the Father with every action. And specifically, when we look at interaction with women, Jesus interacted often with women, sometimes in such a way that even the world of their day would say, wait a minute, we have boundaries culturally. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and the disciples show up and they say, why are you talking to her? Why are you communicating with this lady? There's no reason culturally that you should be speaking with her. But Jesus faithfully and sinlessly interacted rightly with the opposite gender. Although he ministered to prostitutes, he never did so in an inappropriate way. Consider the fact that Jesus never went into a brothel to preach the gospel. He never compromised his integrity in any way. Rather, he always operated with wisdom. For example, he hosted a party at Levi's home and he invited the prostitutes and the sinners in a controlled environment where he is the one who declared this is what we do and this is what we do not do in this room. He was in charge of what would take place. He was not willing to walk into an opportunity for sin. Rather, he was willing to serve and to love those who were sinners in an appropriate and gracious way. So you read through the Gospels and you will see on those pages a perfect example of how to interact with the opposite gender with perfect respect and honor and dignity without even the slightest notion of sinful conduct. Every single time you read a proverb, you should be able to say, that's not me, but that does describe the Lord. That's not me, but I see Jesus in these pages. So in the book of Proverbs, see your need for grace and see that Jesus is the one who is not only perfect, but gives that grace. So when you come to the book of Proverbs, see your inability, see his ability and see that he has given it to you and for you. But secondly, I want to show you that Jesus is also our door into wisdom. Not only does he display it for us, but he gives it to us and brings us into it. Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verse 31, one of the most stunning and shocking things that the Pharisees probably ever heard him say, that the crowds ever heard him speak. He said to them, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and she will condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
Jesus is now declaring to these people, my wisdom is superior to the wisdom of Solomon's. If anyone else in the history of the world ever said such a thing, it would be right to look at them and laugh like a madman, thinking, you are crazy. No, you are not more wise than Solomon, but Christ declaring in all truth that wisdom resides in me. I am much more wise. I am greater in that regard than even Solomon. To finish out, I'm going to read one passage from Proverbs and one passage from the New Testament that show that Jesus is the only way for us to truly receive wisdom. Proverbs 30, verses 2 through 5. I think we're supposed to kind of get here to the almost to the end of Proverbs. And we are to look at this verse and we are to agree with him. He says, Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Here at the end, I think we're supposed to get here and say with this guy, this passage was written by a guy named Agur. I think we're supposed to say, Agur, I agree with you. I've gone through these Proverbs and I realize that I am not there. That there are things commanded of me that I am not currently doing. There are things that I realize that's what wisdom looks like. I must be a fool. Pick one of those five types. I'm walking in one of them. Here at the end of the book, he says, I fall short of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One. If I understood God, if I really trusted who He really says that He is, then I would live differently. And we're supposed to see that wisdom only comes from the One who has gathered up the wind in His fists. That's the One who gives it to us. The One who has taken the waters and put them in a bundle, like it says, He's wrapped them up in a garment. Who has done that? Well, you get a little taste of that when Jesus is walking on the sea or when Jesus says to the raging waters, peace, be still. You get a sense that he is that one. And here he says, he and his son are the ones who are able to give that wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 31 is an extended passage. But I think this is a good place for us to land this morning. It says, where is the one who is wise? That's a good question. The world has a lot of answers. Who would they point to? If you asked a random person on the street, who is the wisest person you've ever heard of? Maybe they would say Albert Einstein because they think of it as intelligence. Maybe they they would speak about a politician or somebody who is really wealthy in business or somebody who is just very popular or famous or somebody who's a good musician. Maybe they would find somebody who's particularly skilled in one aspect that they aspire to be. No, who is wise? Where is he? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Pause for a second. He is saying, no matter how hard you try to get wisdom, what is the beginning of wisdom? Get wisdom. 
no matter how hard you try, if you go through anything other than that message of the gospel that he preached, you're hopeless. There is no wisdom to be found there. He continues, for Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Do you see what he's saying here so far? Simply put, you can't grasp wisdom unless you grasp hold of Christ himself. He is the power and wisdom that you need for life. But he continues, For consider your calling, brothers. Now he's speaking to people who have grasped onto the wisdom of God. You are people who have trusted in Christ. You have believed in that gospel message. You have that power and you have that wisdom. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world, or might we say in the eyes of the world, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring not to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you look at what Pastor Jim said at the beginning, that is what the fool does. Arrogantly says, my way, not yours. I am wiser than you. My plans are better than yours. But no one may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, I want you to see how Paul ultimately describes wisdom in this passage. In the final analysis, he says in verse 30 that Christ became to us wisdom from God, and that is not a new sentence, that is intentionally a parenthetical statement which follows, defining the phrase wisdom that Christ became to us. He defines it by three words, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So how should you read the book of Proverbs in a gospel-centered way? You remember that it is proclaiming the way of righteousness and that you have failed to be righteous. But yet you stand before God as righteous. You remember that he has said you you failed in a lot of stuff. You're not like this. You have cast your lot in with those who have pursued wickedness. You have followed the path that ends up at death. But now... You see Christ who has rightly applied them. That, that is righteousness. And then it says he has become for us sanctification. In other words, you don't just stay in your foolishness. No, it says that Jesus has broken the chains of foolishness that bound tightly to you. Those things that you have pursued knowing they were wrong, God has broken those, those chains so that now you can freely pursue righteousness and apply the Proverbs to your life rightly along with every other call of righteousness in the Bible. And finally, the Proverbs are a reminder that you have been redeemed 
by a perfect redeemer. It says that the wisdom of God is righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The Proverbs are a constant punch in the face to our pride saying, you haven't arrived yet, but you have been redeemed already. Jesus, the wisdom of God, has become redemption for your sin. He has bought you with the price of his own blood. So how do we read the Proverbs in a Christocentric way? See the proverb and see Jesus. See that he has become for us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Let's pray. Our God, we, we acknowledge that the Proverbs are so rich. They are like a treasure chest full of truth that we can apply to our life. And Lord, I pray that as we do so, we would never attempt in our own strength to just try to push ourselves across the finish line. But that we would see them and we would rely on your strength. Just as Pastor Mike said, that without you we can accomplish nothing. Lord, I pray that we would abide in you and delight in you. And that we would see the way that you have rightly and faithfully fulfilled. In your nature and in your character and in the person and work of your son Jesus Christ. All of these things. Lord, I pray that today as we leave this place, we would do so not with a weight on our shoulders pulling us down saying, you must carry this burden of the Proverbs, but that we would walk out of this place feeling that burden taken away, recognizing that we have the strength of Christ, that he has become to us the wisdom and power to live out that wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would please give us an understanding of Christ that lets us see the Proverbs rightly. Lord, as our church reads through these Proverbs over the next coming several months, I pray, Lord, that you would please allow our church to constantly turn our attention to Jesus as we see them, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the one who not only begins our walk with Christ, the one that carries us on to the end, the one who promises that he will turn our hearts to him, the one who says he has written his law upon our heart, the one who says that he indeed will conform us into the image of his perfect son. We pray that you would help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.